We used to be focused on equality of opportunity, which was this idea that everyone should have the same shot. But now equality has essentially been supplanted for equity. The United States is based on this idea of the circumstances of your birth don't have to dictate where you end up in life. Hi, I'm in Piazza, and I'm Jeannie Allen. In Piazza, in case you have not looked at um, at what it's all about, uh, means basically at the town square. And this is where people come together to talk about important issues relating to not just education, knowledge, culture, politics, and anything that we think actually makes our communities better. I'm hosting solo today as my partner in crime, Michael Moe, is on the road. And I'm so pleased to have um, an incredible guest uh, and a good friend and someone who is leading the charge for um, real community, a great nation for everyone, equal opportunity, and um, civic dialogue about some things that are really compelling to so many people today. Um, in nearly five months, we've had the opportunity to talk to extraordinary guests. As I said, today is no exception. I'm pleased to welcome Ian Rowe, who has worn so many hats it's tough to know where to start. He was the first Black editor-in-chief of the Harbus when he was at Harvard Business School. And he has pioneered exciting education opportunities from uh, charter schools to writing about phenomenal work. He's now co-founder of the Vertex Partnership Academies. Can't wait to talk about that, Ian. A new network of character-based um, IB high schools opening the Bronx in 2022. Yep. And while he's not directly changing lives of deserving students, he is um, focusing on critical issues such as upward mobility, family formation, success sequence and adoption, which is so cool. Uh, senior fellow at AEI, his commentary on social platforms keeps everyone engaged and inspired. And um, I'm just so pleased that you are with us, Ian. Thank you so much. Well, Jeannie, thank you for having me. That's quite an introduction. You went all the way back to Harvard Business School. Oh my gosh, I have a lot to live up to. <laughs> well, it's a pretty amazing accomplishment for anyone. I mean, that's it's pretty extraordinary. So, um, and it and it's still, despite all the political correctness, it's still a pretty damn good education, huh? Well, Harvard Business School is going through its own wokeness uh, period right now. I have to interesting. say, it's very interesting. When when I was at Harvard Business School, the word equity was a word that had serious meaning because equity. Equity back then meant ownership and opportunity and enterprise. It, 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 was, it, was, your, it was your pathway to, to gain a piece of something that through your effort and your team's effort could grow and you had equity. You know, it's like equity in your home. Now, equity actually takes on a very different definition because it's much more aligned to equality of outcomes uh, in a forcible way. And I think it's, it's, it's very interesting. I'm thinking of writing an essay on this, how, how the word equity has morphed over the last few decades. How it's changed so much. That's so interesting because I guess I still think about it in the exact way you just described it and what it meant at Harvard way back then. Um, but it, it's almost like forced or a guarantee. If you're not working toward a guarantee today that somebody has what you're doing right now is going to guarantee them outcomes like you're, you're hosed, Right. 
Well, this is kind of one of the fundamental um, topics of the of the current zeitgeist, which is we used to be focused on equality of opportunity, right? Which was this this idea that everyone should have the same shot. Maybe as someone who runs schools, you have differentiation strategies so that you help kids that may be behind, or you have insure insure things like school choice, so you can ensure equality of opportunity. But now equality has essentially been supplanted for equity, which again, certainly seems to be some kind of forced, um, you know, Bergeron, you know, short, short story, uh, where you are guaranteeing outcomes are all equal, um, or, or let's put it this way, when it's, when it's racial equity, it's either black kids have to equal whatever percent performance white kids are, or it means uh, population parity. Mm -hmm. Ironic thing is, in either definition, you're setting a ceiling on black achievement. Mm -hmm. Why would we want to do that? Well, let's jump into that. So they, so they, they've been uh, many school systems have been lifting or eradicating any distinctions. If you're an exceptional student, you no longer have access to exceptional education because it's seen that that's somehow inequitable, particularly for students of color. If not everybody can be in there, why should anyone have that? It's kind of a little Orwellian, right? It is very Orwellian. You know, I'm, I'm a kid, I, you know, I, I went to New York City public schools, K to 12. I had a great public education and I got into Brooklyn Tech, which is one of the specialized high schools. I had to take a test to get in. And at that time, there were a lot of black kids, a lot of Asian kids, a lot of um, uh, Hispanic kids. It was actually pretty amazing. Um, and over the years, partly because of the deterioration of K to eight schools, there are less uh, kids of color who are prepared to take these exams. And yes, yeah, so now because there are lower numbers of kids of color in these schools, the, this, the idea being put forth is, well, then let's just eliminate the exam as if somehow that's going to solve the problem. Right. It, is, it is the most mindless um, thinking that let's just, yeah, if, if everyone can't have it, then let's just uh, take it away from everyone. And it's, um, it's a race to mediocrity. You know, I was in Boston giving a speech the other day and someone brought up that they are um, he heavily considering removing the requirement for exams to Boston Latin. This is a school that even people in the charter movement have copied. You know, our friend David Hardy, Boys Latin in Philadelphia, there are all these copycats as one in Newark, your boys school, and all, all, the, all the stuff people started was because you realize that when you actually have a goal and expectation, you people don't, don't they move toward the expectation, Ian, as opposed to, so if you lower it, why should they try hard? Well, it's just, it's just a dodge. It's, it's just, Rather than saying that the standard matters, and maybe the issue is in the preparation of kids. And so, yes, there's a real issue if only a certain percent of kids are operating at the highest level. But you don't take away the objective assessment uh, to get you there. I just, think, I just think it's people who are virtue signaling that want to achieve some kind of artificial, quote-unquote, representation mm -hmm as opposed to actual representation based on ensuring truly equal opportunity, meaning good schools for most kids, particularly in K-8, to because that, that's, that's where the meat is. So what were you doing, you know, kind of, I would imagine, minding your own business when you, as you referred to it, this wokeness stuff started. You are 
um, part of the 1776 Unites campaign, yep. which is a Black-led, nonpartisan, intellectually diverse group of people who are credibly concerned about the narrative on America. Mm-hmm. Um, for those listeners out there who aren't watching, Ian's Black. Uh, so he's a little contrarian, apparently, in a lot of the circles that he that he's in, I would imagine. Like, how does that feel? What were you doing when all this stuff started happening? Were you like, everything's good, it's awesome, I'm teaching, I'm doing what I want, and all of a sudden, like, the rug was pulled out from under you, and you were like, I got to challenge this? Well, you know, it's like many of us, I think we're very influenced by very early experiences. So my parents came to this country from Jamaica, West Indies, typical American dream, immigrants um, who said they were, they were well aware of this country's history of racial oppression, right? They, they came here in the 60s, the Civil Rights Act had just been signed, but there were still lots of racial incidents. Um, you know, but we, we first moved into Brooklyn, and then after a few years, we moved to Queens, to this town called Laurelton, Queens. Mm-hmm. And it was a you know, small neighborhood, but it was, it, the, the racial makeup was changing. It was becoming more racially integrated, more Blacks were moving in, and there was a lot of racial tension. And my high school, Junior 231, was, became a focal point of a lot of racial incidents. And the school board decided to solve the problem to open a new junior high school in, the, in a white part of town called Rosedale, Queens, right? And so what all the white parents in our school decided to do was they moved their kids out of junior high school 231 to this annex, right? And my parents, and, and essentially making junior high school 231, you know, a, a, a virtually wow. an all-black segregated school, right? Wow. And my parents... You know, Jamaican immigrants, they want to ensure their kid had the best. They, on the presumption that the education was going to be better where the white kids were, they were going to take me out of the school. And, you know, I've shared this story before, but I will always remember the Sunday night, the night before my parents were going to put in the transfer papers. You know, I was, what, 12 years old at the time. And they said, look, we're going to send you to the the school because it's going to be a better education. And I remember literally crying and pleading and begging my parents. I love my school. Just because it's all going to be all black, that doesn't mean it has to be bad. I'll work really hard. I promise. I promise. And, you know, my dad was in his recliner. My mom was on the couch. Like like our positions. Like I remember it so vividly just begging my parents and they acquiesced. They said, okay. Uh, and and I stayed in that school and I opened got to Brooklyn Tech and Cornell and Harvard and all blah 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 and so you know I feel good about my education but that experience I think has forever forever changed how I viewed the world that in some ways a that was the first time I because I had never questioned my parents about anything right my parents my parents were married for 48 years my dad passed away they did everything for their kids and so I'd never challenged them at all but there was something I felt that was wrong about this assumption that simply because of the racial makeup of a school, that was what was dictating whether or not it would be good or not. So I've always had this view, you know, and this it was also my first feeling of agency. So I've always had this view that regardless of circumstance, there are things that you can do to make things better yeah. for your community, for yourself. And so, yeah, I mean, right now there's a, there's a national reckoning on race and structural racism, 
systemic racism, institutional racism, I want to introduce a new adjective. <laughs> and that adjective is surmountable racism. Surmountable. I love that. Surmountable racism. Like, because in what society on, in human history has there not been some form of racism or tribalism that has existed? Mm-hmm. Right? We should all be seeking to eradicate racism, sure. But surmountable racism is what we want our kids to understand that, yes, there are going to be forces in this world that may not like you because of your skin color, but you are not immobilized by that, right? And so us adults, we're working to have things like school choice and effective reading to to break down some of these structural barriers, but we never want kids to believe that they've got to be the ones to overcome institutional racism, white power, because we're then doing the very thing that is the worst for kids, which is taking away their individual agency. So yeah, I'm out there. I'm out there writing about these things. And hey, so great, and you have a great piece describing this in the Wall Street Journal called "The Power of Personal Agency." And I love, I love the statement that you use. The idea that only whites can undo structural racism sends young blacks a message of powerlessness. Yeah, well, that means I mean we're waiting on someone else. Waiting on someone else, and by my. By my acknowledging, um, which I refuse to do, by the way, because it's not true, my privilege, my privilege. You want, you, want, you want to talk about what my father was doing as an Italian right. immigrant being right. thrown through the coals? Yeah, you know what? I've worked and I'm really, really lucky and fortunate and blessed right now. But by saying that, am I going to make your life any better or worse? No, right. And also, it's not acknowledging that my two children are privileged. <laughs> no, my own two children. So, because, you know, we, we mix up race and class, I think. Right. Uh, Far, far, far yeah. too much. Yeah. And um, yeah, I wrote I wrote that piece because there there had been a um, sort of a, this event uh, I think somewhere in Maryland where all these people were just like confessing their white privilege. I will love my my black neighbors as much as it was just all performative nonsense. It, it's the kind of stuff where you know take Aunt Jemima off the shelves. All this like performative nonsense which has no effect on improving reading outcomes for kids, right? And so this idea that, you know, you you put the entire black community in the hands of these white supremacists, who, who, by the way, if there's such white supremacy, what's the strategy that you're now waiting for these people who you're claiming to be so evil? They're the ones that you're now waiting for to transform your situation. And so, you know, myself, folks like Bob Woodson at 1776 Unites, who said, look, there's a long history of black agency, black resilience, black excellence in the face of unimaginable adversity mm-hmm. at times when things were far worse than exist today. And we need more of that narrative to be alongside systemic racism. How about some surmountable racism and the strategies that millions and millions of black people and people of other races have used to move from persecution to prosperity? You know, one of those strategies that you've talked about, I remember my, my friend years ago, Don Eberly, started the National Fatherhood Initiative. You took mm-hmm. a, you talk about two-parent households. And um, you, you don't hear that anymore. It's as if, as if talking about them is somehow an insult to one-parent household. Look, there are a lot of single-parent families out there, as you well know, um, many of them not intentionally. I was a widow. I have four kids. I was a widow. I didn't intend to be that way. 
I am not any, I mean, I'm now remarried. Some people do, some people don't. Some people it's a result of not choice. Some people it is by choice. But saying a two-parent family is superior is not a condemnation of an individual's individual plight. Talk about that because the connection to economic productivity and success in life is directly correlated, isn't it? Yeah, fat, you know, this is it's, this is what's so weird about our current dialogue. We we can't seem to uh, say obvious things, you know. So if we're having a discussion, for example, about racial disparities, if you don't just accept that, well, those racial disparities must be caused by structural racism, then you must be racist unto yourself. And it's like, well, guys, there are other factors, you know. Uh, family structure matters, and it's not an opinion. I mean, I just released a, a major. A research study a couple of weeks ago where we studied what is the impact of being raised in a married two-parent household versus being raised in a single-parent household and across race. And the findings were pretty clear. Dramatically higher probability of finishing college, dramatically lower likelihood of living in poverty, mm-hmm. and dramatically lower likelihood of being incarcerated if you're raised in a married two-parent household. And if you're a black kid raised in a married two-parent household, you have less likelihood than a white kid raised in a single-parent household of going to jail, right? So so if we know that that data is out there, the the answer isn't to then demonize single mothers. It's to say to young kids who are on the horizon of making their own decisions as they now enter young adulthood, right? What are the series of decisions that give you the greatest likelihood of success or not? We can share with you the data, but ultimately you have to make your choice. That's not, that's not blaming the victim. That's not demonizing single mothers. It's ensuring young people know the likely rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. And, and the models. And the models, you know. So there are models out there. I was having a conversation um, with a colleague, and he's become a friend, Gene Slocum. He runs a charter school he started in uh, rural North Carolina in Fayetteville called um, Alpha Academy. And he's got the only approved um, Katherine Johnson science lab after one of the hidden figure wow. stars. Of wow. course, the, astro- the, the woman who was yeah. the scientist behind um, the launch. And we got in this conversation when I went down there once about how all of those women that you read about in Hidden Figures all came from families who that their focus was, I mean, they were having difficult times. They were in the middle of racist, racism, right. uh, sexism, you name it. And their families, if not their own direct families, immediate families, their grandparents were made sure that they were had everything they could have, food on the table, and expectations. Food on the table, he said, and ambition. And I think that's the other thing. When I hear you talk, I get scared. I I fear, and I am often worried and scared about our country because the word ambition Mm. is somehow an evil word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with having aspirations. I mean, the United States is based on this idea of the circumstances of your birth don't have to dictate where you end up in life. And, um, 
you know, I talk a lot about this idea of agency, and sometimes people say, oh, well, you're just trying to say people need to uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It actually isn't that easy. We, we, we are social beings, and that you need, you know, what I call mediating institutions. You need strong families, strong faith-based organizations, strong schools. Like, those are part of the equation, too. And so there is, there is a contract that a kid has to know that they're part of the story, that they have to have ambition. And then we got to ensure that we live in a country that is making it possible for you to have access to a great education. Mm -hmm. Too many kids don't have that opportunity now. And optimally that you grow up in a strong, stable family. I mean, the data is overwhelming. The non-marital birth rate in 2019 for women 24 and under was 71%. And, you know, and as I say, it's an equal opportunity tsunami. The non-marital birth rate for white women 24 and under was 61% in 2019. It just so happens to be 91% in the black community. But the point is... It's it's, still big. It's It's, huge. huge. And, you know, you have to say there are always exceptions where there are some single moms who do amazing things and they're they're married to parents who, who are completely dysfunctional. But the data is overwhelming. And for us not to be honest about that in terms of how to inform the next generation about their likely outcomes is just a disservice. And it's being disingenuous. You know, Ian, so true. And I I also wonder if that's where um, those of us who do really advocate and appreciate education opportunity in all of its different incarnations, charters, vouchers, whatever, um, aren't also missing an opportunity to emphasize that one of the reasons parents, many low-income parents, many single parents want to choose a school for their child is because they're finding a community, right? If you're in that situation where there's no no choice of your own, yep. you are single, you are up an uphill battle. If you find a school community that serves you and supports your family and your and what you need, you are much less, much more likely to have success with your with your ch- children. But if you go to like, here's the thousand person, the three thousand person school. Oh, even worse, here's the seven hundred person school. But we're going to bus your kid forty five minutes away, wow. away from your community to somehow make things better for them. And right. so this idea of family and community and choice are kind of all intricately related. Yeah, it's central. I mean, back to my own story when I was 12 years old. I mean, I didn't want to have to schlep all the way to road because the other thing, it would have taken like at least an hour every morning to get. Oh, that's a good part. I mean, just, and just why, why can't we strengthen things right here in our own community? I mean, this is why I run schools. I mean, in, the, in District 8 in the South Bronx, where my uh, public prep schools are located and where Vertex Partnership Academies will be located. In 2015, if you started ninth grade, four years later, only 2% of those kids that started ninth grade in 2015 graduated from high school ready for college. Meaning that you started in uh, 2015 and you dropped out or you actually did get your high school diploma, but you still couldn't do reading nor math without remediation uh, in, if you went to college. And yet there's a cap on the number of charter schools. So if you had a great idea, if you had a great idea to launch a new school, you could not do that right now, right? And so, we're, we're, and so this is an example, by the way, of a systemic barrier. You know, we often say systemic racism. This is a real example <laughs> that's holding back 
cap. Loan, yes, of course. And uh, this is the kind of thing where, again, I'm trying to... Yeah, tell me about this. The, the, these, are, these are the barriers that are truly standing in the way, particularly of low-income kids of color. So tell me about Vortex Partnership Academies. It sounds exciting. And is, is this, are they a charter school network? It is a charter school network, and, and it's an innovative one. So in New York City right now, there are about 186 charter elementary schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only about 29 go through uh, 12th grade. Wow. So meaning the vast majority of even charter school kids, if you get a good education in elementary and middle school, you are thrust into the abyss of the New York City high school um, process. And, you know, the, frankly, there just aren't enough high-quality high school seats. Even if you private schools, parochial schools, you know, the, the specialized high schools are oversubscribed. And so I wanted, so there's a, so there's a structural problem in that there aren't enough high-quality high schools, right, even for charter school kids. So came up with this innovative idea where what if we could allow K-8s to partner together so that a K-8, let's say one network, takes its existing charter K-8, extends it to K-12, but they may not want to run their own high school because running high school is a beast. They may, not, they may not have enough scale. But what if that K-8 could then partner with another K-8 and so suddenly you, you could have enough kids that could fuel a high school. So that's essentially what we've done, where we're, we're now allowing K-8 networks to partner together, simultaneously, simultaneously extend their charter, and that portion of their charters, grades 9 through 12, sign an agreement with Vertex Partnership Academies, nice. which is now this new enterprise whose core competence is running great high schools. And so we're launching a character-based international baccalaureate uh, network of high schools. And the other innovation is that it will both have what's called the IB diploma mm-hmm. program. Most people are familiar with that's your college pathway. And we'll have something called the IB careers pathway, which is an apprenticeship model where at the end of four years of high school, you can graduate with an industry credential with the labor market value. And so computer science, architecture, and something in healthcare will likely be our first three industries. When I went to Brooklyn Tech years ago, there were 14 different majors. I was an electrical engineer in high school. And so it's this idea that college should yes. be an option, but we need to make sure that kid, not, every, not every kid thinks that college, you know, four years of college, you know, $200,000 is necessarily the pathway for them. So what if in high school we had equally rigorous pathways, but one could um, enter industry right away? And so we're bringing that uh, to the South Bronx starting in 2022. Amazing. Okay, I have so much to talk to you about that um, online, offline. But by the way, little data point. So my father, little scrappy, dirty Italian kid, as he was called, um, (laughs) who came here in fifth grade, but went in the kindergarten because he couldn't speak and because no one wanted to teach him eventually made his way to a Queens-based high school that he got an electrical engineering certificate ah. and then someone took took notice of him and he ended up going to NYU to become an engineer. Wow. That stuff only happens, by the way, in America. Let me just say that. Yep. And that's why we always have to depend at all costs. But, you know, those opportunities you had, he had so many people today have, why they're dying literally to come in yes, to this country. Exactly. Yep. But that certificate... And then the idea of a college-bound 
I've always argued, and I, it sounds like you agree, it's not an either or, right? It is, it is all of them should be pathways that you can plug and play. Yeah, equally rigorous. Right. And not like, oh, you, oh, you're, you're just, you're cute. You're kind of dopey. We're going to send you down to the shop lab and you're never going to see a calculus. No, like and, you can't uh, do that to kids. Yeah. When I was at Brooklyn Tech, our shop classes were really hard and they were fun yeah. and engaging. Yeah. No, yeah. There is this thing called vocational tech. Maybe that's a step down. No, the whole idea that these are equally respected, equally rigorous uh, options for kids. And you know, again, just look at the United States, something only like 30% of all Americans have a college degree, right? So it's a, the, the much greater norm is non-college. Mm-hmm. And so um, while we definitely want kids to have the opportunity, the choice of college, mm-hmm. um, you know, give kids a choice. I mean, and, and, and if they want to do college years later, after earning some money in, in an industry that they've done apprenticeships in, yes. the whole idea is you're doing an apprenticeship in grades 11 and 12. Like yeah. you're actually working in the industry. So let's have that. And, and um, I just think, you know, we want to create a model uh, of choice, of having multiple pathways, and then also creating an innovative solution so that if you're a K to eight network, you don't have to have the full burden of launching your own high school to guarantee a great option for your graduates. For Text Partnership Academies, what a great idea. Um, what did you think about during COVID uh, and since the growth and rise of pandemic pods, micro schools? Do you see those playing, continue to play a role in education? Well, I will confess that my wife and I, uh, in our small town, we created a pandemic pod. We were not satisfied with what the elementary school was proposing. So we partnered with 10 other parents Mm. and we hired a teacher and a part-time teacher to teach our six boys. There were six boys in this pod. We we have a a nice little facility and it was an amazing, amazing year. And our daughter was, we we kept her in middle school because we felt that their plan was a bit more effective, both when hybrid um, and in-person instruction. Uh, And we are sending our son back to his local public school next year, um, partly because the situation's a lot better. We have more confidence. But I do think we, we've crossed an important line for a lot of parents. A lot of parents got much more visibility into what their kids are learning on a mm-hmm. day-to-day basis. And I think you're going to see a rise in homeschooling. I even saw a poll the other day in the Black community. There's more and more embrace of homeschooling. You know, so I think... That's one of the um, uh, aftermath outcomes of COVID. Also, a lot of parents are, you know, seeing what's happening with, we don't have to go there entirely, but with, um, you know, critical race theory and some Mm -hmm. of the practices associated with that, they're saying, I'm not sure if I want my kids to be in an environment where it seems like we're talking about structural racism and oppressors and oppressed. And I think a lot of parents are saying that's, you know, I, 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 you know, I believe that we should talk about slavery and racism, but it seems like we've, we, we're going, we're going, the pendulum is swinging way too far to the other side. And so I think there, for those reasons, choice, school choices have become even more important for families. So true. Well, Ian, you've been fantastic to be with me. You know, we are going to be together at the ASU GSV Summit in August. Uh, For those of you out there who are listening and want to go to really the most fun, hottest speed date 
in your life about all things knowledge, education, and tech. San Diego, August 9th through 11th, I think, ASU GSV. Yeah. So it's going to be like my 12th or 13th I can't, consecutive. I don't know. It's a great thing to go on. My partner, Michael Moe, helped found it. Um, you all should follow Ian Rowe at Ian V. Rowe on Twitter. Um, be sure to be following in Piazza underscore pod uh, in Piazza on um, Twitter. And and listen, I got to tell you something, Ian, your work also, 1776, couldn't be more important when I always think about July 4th coming. We're all so excited to get back to parades and our barbecues and our fun. But like you are all really talking about what it actually means to be here and what history teaches us. Um, and I know that that runs through all of the schools you've started and that you're about to start. So we just feel so fortunate, particularly during this sort of July 4th time to have such a true patriot as our guest. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, this, uh, we're all part of the same team. You know, we're, we, we, we can't have a divided nation, especially based on race. Like we, we fought these battles before. And I think there's this kind of concern that are we going backwards, particularly as it relates to race relations. And we need to focus on what Vertex is focused on, which is equality of opportunity, individual dignity, and our common humanity. That's what we're focused on. We want a world in which kids know that those are the grounding principles for the country we live in. So exciting. I hope everybody follows along with you and uh, and learns to appreciate your point of view. Thank you again. God bless you, Pete. Thank you, Jimmy. And as we say in Piazza, ciao, ci vediamo, until uh, alla prossima, till next time. You can find In Piazza wherever you get your podcast. This is a special project of the Center for Education Reform and GSV. Thanks for listening to In Piazza. Ci vediamo, or as we say in English, we'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moe. Ciao.